Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. This is A Public Affair, and I'm your host, Ali Maldro. Today on A Public Affair, we're talking about a New York City women's prison that operated between 1929 and 1971. In his new book, our guest, Hugh Ryan, looks at the role of queerness played in the incarceration of women who were held in that prison in Greenwich Village. He explores how their queerness influenced the neighborhood and maybe even the country. How are you doing today, Hugh? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on, Ali. Oh, thank you so much for writing this book. I I kind of wanted to start with, like, how dare you write a book that is this good and this sad? Because this is a a great book. It is gut-wrenchingly tragic. And I think part of that is you seem to be very aware of the humanity of these people who were incarcerated and very aware of their childhood trauma and their identities and the things that they were up against. What inspired you to write this book, um, and why was it important to you to do it with such compassion for the folks impacted? Mm, That's a good question. There were actually like a number of different things that all came at me at the same time. As I was finishing up my last book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, there were several folks in it whose life I followed basically up until the point where they were incarcerated. And so in doing that, I started thinking a lot about how prisons provide a lot of data about queer people historically because of arrest records. So it's easy to track things that maybe don't get talked about in other places. But I wasn't yet thinking about prisons more fully as determining queer experiences or as really being queer spaces. Mm. But I was following the life of a trans man named Big Cliff Trondle and a black woman who was a dancer and a domestic worker in New York City named Mabel Hampton. And the two of them passed through the women's house of detention and it seemed formative to their lives. It seemed important. And I started to see the ways in which their lives echoed through Greenwich Village. So I had this idea from my previous work that the Women's House of Detention and queer prison history in Greenwich Village maybe was important somehow. Then... I actually was talking to a member of my local community, Jay Toole, who leads these tours of the West Village to talk about the history of the Women's House of Detention because she had been incarcerated there. And she felt like that history was being forgotten. As she said to me, young people today don't know about it. So it was like I had this history leading me up to the start of the prison. And then I had this history at the end of the prison looking me dead in the eye saying, I'm being forgotten. My Mm. history, our history is going away. And it just felt like I was being called to do this. And then in that moment, of course, once you start thinking about a project like this, suddenly, you know, your eyes are on and it's everywhere. I found a copy of Audre Lorde's memoir on a a stoop in Park Slope. And I was like, you know, I haven't read this in so long. I'll grab this copy. Flipping through it. There it was, the Women's House of Detention. I was looking at Joan Nessel's work. There it was, the Women's House of Detention. Rereading Stone Butch Blues. There it was, the Women's House of Detention. Looking at histories of Stonewall. It was just over and over and over again. And I thought, wait, how do I not know about this? And that was the real thing. I always in these projects want to explore the limits of my own knowledge, my own ignorance, because like most of us, I don't know a lot about queer history, certainly did not learn it in school in the 80s and 90s. So for me, when I feel called by the community to do this work, and at the same time, I can see a path for myself to learn something that feels incredibly important, both to history, but to our modern struggle today in this moment of mass incarceration, that for me said I needed to write this book. You wrote about the the folks who are whose stories are featured in this book with an incredible amount of, of tenderness and respect for what they went through, particularly looking at, I think, you know, I've read a lot about mass incarceration over the years. And I think one of the things for me that's a real tell of the the quality of, of the book is whether or not people understand the kinds of childhoods um, that that are, are real indicators of whether or not somebody's going to be incarcerated. And you seem to 
do a really beautiful job in in pretty concise ways of saying, you know, by the time this person was four years old, they had been abandoned by everybody who was supposed to love them and had run away from home already. Um, by the time this person was 15, they had given a kid up for adoption. You you really uh, lean into the the individual stories. And I thought with and while really, you know, giving the reader a comprehensive sense of kind of the data and accumulative information. At one point in the book, you say right now today, about 40 percent of people who are incarcerated identify as members of the LGBTQ community. We're living in a time right now where trans folks, trans children um, are kind of being attacked by legislatures across the country. How does your book and these stories, how do they fit into uh, the political context of right now, because I think it would be easy to look at a book like this and go, well, actually, we've come a long way. Um, and I, I had a little bit of a fear around like, oh, things have gotten so much better um, for, for the LGBTQ community, given kind of the current political reality of, of what's being pursued uh, in terms of the LGBTQ community, specifically when you're talking about trans women. Um, can you talk a little bit about how today's politics influence the way you approach the story. Absolutely. So today's politics really influenced the story in, in two different ways. One, and for me, what was really crucial and critical was that when I finished doing this research, as I looked at the prison system historically and came to understand what it was really doing, and by that, I mean that it wasn't about rehabilitation or justice, but was largely about warehousing poor people so that all of our other systems that actually are broken wouldn't fall apart underneath their weight because we only want to provide services to the people who are of course, deserving. And we don't think those who have been incarcerated are deserving. So mm. abolitionists were the only ones who understood this paradigm looking back historically. When I decade after decade looked at people talking about prisons and specifically the House of D, everyone agreed this prison is terrible, doesn't help anyone. Most of the people here should not be incarcerated at all and specifically not here. And if decade after decade everyone agrees about that and nothing can be changed, then most of the people who are talking about the system do not understand what it's doing. So when I went looking for people who could teach me how to understand what I was seeing historically, it was modern abolitionists who brought it home for me, who brought everything together, who taught me why the system worked the way that it was working. It was folks like Angela Davis, who was in the House of Detention in the 1970s. And from her, then that led me to all of these other modern thinkers from Mariam Kaba to Andrea Ritchie to Joey Magal. Uh, there are just so many great and brilliant abolitionists working right now. And so that's one area of kind of modern political thought that was really important for me in doing this. The other way, as you mentioned, uh, is thinking about trans rights, queer youth rights, um, what it is to think about a queer politics, right? I've always been a leftist. I was raised in a, you know, democratic immigration, uh, uh, immigrant union family. Uh, I, but this kind of like far left, let's call it, this abolition politics was not something I, I knew a ton about. And I needed to think as I was going through this, well, what do these queer people that I'm encountering again and again, what is happening that is making them more vulnerable for the prison system, right? And that showed me two things. One, that the system is built, literally, our system of justice, quote unquote, when it applies to women is built to focus on queer people. It's not an accident. It is absolutely on purpose. But two, and more broadly, queer people often need care in our society because our society sees care as something that should come from the nuclear family. And too often we are children whose parents kick them out. We are adults who do not have descendants to take care of us. Uh, we are people who need care. And that is what gets you into prison over and over and over again. If you need care and it cannot come from your nuclear family to one way or another, the government eventually tries to incarcerate you or put you in an asylum or put you in a foster home. All of these systems that are trying to take the place of the care we do not receive elsewhere. And that, for me, is the hopeful part of this story, right? That brings together abolition and queer politics and gives me a view for the future, right? We can see that queer people need care and that people who are incarcerated need care. And that right there the need for care and bodily autonomy that brings together these movements that shows me a way forward. So I, I want to lean into something you said, which is that, you know, these these spaces, these prisons were used to warehouse people living in poverty. Um, but I think it's often that 
prisons are used to warehouse people who are sitting at the inter- intersection of marginalized identities, folks with disabilities, folks living in poverty, LGBTQ folks, folks of color, and heaven forbid, you are all of those things, right? Um, then mm-hmm. then what, is, what does our society do to you? And when does our society start doing that to you? There is a mythology, though, that poor people commit more crime, that being poor necessitates criminal behavior, um, that people of color commit more crime, that being a person of color uh, is is inherently associated with a, a lack of, of moral uh, capacity. Um, mm-hmm. How I, I think, and one of the reasons I bring that up is I think we live in a society where how we feel about the poor, how we feel about poor people, how we feel about people who have lived in poverty um, doesn't necessarily connect to how we feel about people who have a lot of money, right? Like this idea that wealthy people are the people in our society who have the most integrity and are the most hardworking and are the least likely to commit a crime. There's kind of this disjointed idea of do we really think poor people are that bad or do we actually just admire people who have, you know, a ton of resources? Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about the way resources, the way identity, um, is is a factor throughout this book. Absolutely. I mean, identity in general is a major factor in all of my work because I think we are treated and experience the world differently depending on our race, our gender, our wealth, and also how those things are perceived by others, which are not always the same, interestingly, in this book, frequently, actually. And I think that it's important that we uh, pull out these differentiations because they do change how we experience the world. And at every level, people with more resources are better able to protect themselves from the criminal legal system. They're not committing fewer crimes. (laughs) They're getting caught less often. And in fact, their very lives aren't criminalized in the same ways. And what do I mean by that? Here's, Here's like one very basic example. When you look at the history of women being arrested or women, people assumed to be women being arrested in America, and you go back to the time when the House of Detention was founded, we have this charge called vagrancy prostitution. We all think we know what prostitution is, right? It's the exchange of sex for money. That's not the case in New York state law. In fact, prostitution at that time was defined as the common lewdness of women. Simply being a poor woman was Mm. seen as being an invitation to prostitution. Poverty meant that you would eventually commit prostitution if you were a woman because you had no other legal options, right? So any woman who looked poor could simply be arrested for being a vagrant. Well, what makes you look poor? Being out alone at night. So many lesbians, for instance, are out without men. They look poor to the police. Or many black women who are employed in jobs that make you work at night in the 1930s coming home. Maybe you're wearing pants because you had to wear a uniform. All of those things make you look poor in the eyes of the police and get you arrested for prostitution, right? It's crazy how what we consider you as determines whether or not you will be arrested whether or not you will receive probation, how long your sentence will be, if you will be fined, if you will be arrested again, over and over and over again at every step of this process. If you are outside the charmed circle of whiteness, maleness, straightness, money, being native born, you are in more danger from our criminal legal system. And I think that at its heart gets at why the system does not work. If this is a system where just simply being poor or being black or being a lesbian makes you more vulnerable, then the system has a problem. I want to talk to you about your own identity, in part because I'm looking at you right now. Our, our audience can't see you, but I'm making assumptions uh, about how you identity identify Hugh Ryan. And I think one of one of the things that stood out to me in reading this book is how closely I identified with so many of the people you were talking about as, you know, as a black woman, as a queer person, as a person who grew up in poverty. Um, I found, you know, my friends in this book. I found members of my family in this book. When you when you have a data point like one in three, you know, black men will will spend time in prison. That means that I you know, almost every person I know who identifies as black has a close relative who is in prison. Um, I, I have visited prisons. I have been arrested. Um, I have I, I have real experiences within my own life, within the lives of the people I'm related to that 
felt deeply understood um, by the way you wrote this book. And I wondered if those experiences were yours. Do, do you identify as a person who is more likely to be targeted by the police? Have you spent time visiting families, family members in prison? How does your identity factor into this story? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, as you said, I present as a white guy, uh, obviously the, the most charmed of charmed circles in protection. But I'm definitely someone who has been system impacted in my life, mostly through my family, not directly me, though. In high school, I was put into a scared straight program uh, and brought to Sing Sing prison uh, to show us, you know, what not to be. You were brought uh, to Sing Sing prison as uh, you mean you like the prison from Shawshank Redemption? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I grew up right by it. So they brought us there. <laughs> Uh, so in places like that, or when I worked as a rape crisis counselor, I would often uh, interact with the police, uh, usually in, in, in very, unfortunately, negative senses. They were not very helpful. Um, but through my larger family, I have spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and dealing with the court system. I've had many relatives who have been arrested and incarcerated. Uh, when a cousin of mine was arrested for murder, her lawyer told us that simply the most important thing we could do was be good white faces sitting in the front of that courtroom every single day she was on trial, that that was the most important service we could provide. So I know about these things, not directly. I don't want to claim that I have ever been incarcerated. These are not my personal experiences. I tread lightly in trying to think about these things, but I have certainly seen the impacts directly in my life, in the lives of my friends, in the lives of my family. When I was a social worker, in the lives of the youth, I worked with queer homeless youth in New York City, you know, and I saw the way they were treated by the police, by the justice system, what happened to them when they went to Rikers. For the last 16 years, I've worked as a part-time office person in a nonprofit that works on social justice issues. And we actually have a number of projects that work on the criminal legal system uh, that are working to close Rikers, that are working to change police reforms in New York City. So I've been a, a fly on the wall to a lot of those conversations and I've been so thankful to learn through that because I'm not a trained historian. My undergraduate degrees in women's studies, my graduate degree is in creative writing. I don't know the right way to do history, but I'm good at listening. And that I think is more than anything what my job is about is listening and reading and thinking and talking to people who have had these experiences and finding the records as we go backwards of what these experiences were like 10 years ago and 50 years ago and 150 years ago. Oh, Hugh, I cannot thank you enough for that response and for being, one, just so willing to talk about your own identity, but also to talk about your connection to your family and your greater community. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. And today we're talking to author Hugh Ryan about queerness, incarceration, and the women who were held in a prison in Greenwich Village. He explores how queerness influences the neighborhood, influenced that neighborhood, and maybe even the country. I, I want to go back to something that you were saying earlier, and I want to invite folks to join the conversation. The number is 608 256 2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Twitter or on a public affair Facebook page. So if you have questions, comments, things you want to make sure that I ask, let us know. Um, we'll, we'll get you on the air. I, I want to go back to what you said about, you know, the care folks need as, as queer folks um, or as members of the LGBTQ community being uh, being part of why you're criminalized. And I think one of the things you said is you worked with queer homeless youth. And it's so interesting to me how often there's no repercussions for parents, right? If you kick your kid out for being gay, if you essentially abandon, neglect, abuse your child because of their gender or sexuality, it's often the child who themselves who absorbs um, the consequences for that, who ends up without housing, who ends up without health care, who ends up without their basic needs being met. And it's very rare that you see the adults involved um, held accountable for, for the, the harm that that young person experiences. Can you talk a little bit about how the stories of, of queer homeless youth show up in this book and why queer homeless youth are so much more likely than other young people to end up incarcerated? 
Absolutely. You know, one of the biggest things today and historically that will get you incarcerated as a queer youth is being gender nonconforming. That comes up over and over and over again. And I'm not talking about identity, right? This isn't necessarily mean you identify as transgender or you identify as gay or you identify as any of these things. But if your gender is perceived as at odds with what it quote unquote should be, you are so much more likely to be incarcerated. And that goes back to the 1930s, 1920s, 1910s, the 1890s. In fact, it goes all the way back to the start of what we'll call our women's legal system. So because I am a historian and I'm a little long winded, we're going to go back to the 19th century for a quick minute. But I swear we're coming back. So end of the 19th century. 1870s. Civil War has just happened. Uh, the U.S. has a prison population that is overflowing, exploding. It's every prison around the country is overwhelmed because we have these two populations emerging into the public sphere that hadn't been there largely before. Black people of all genders and women of all races. Prior to this point, their discipline and punishment was handled by the nuclear family. Uh, their fathers, their brothers, their husbands, the families that enslaved them, the families that employed them. Suddenly, these people are in the public sphere. They're being arrested. They're filling up our prisons. And we have to decide how we handle this. So there's this big conference in 1870, and they determine that we need a whole separate system for women, a whole legal system focused on women, because women are so different from men, and they have such different needs. And in fact, the need that they land on is this. There are only two good jobs for a woman. You can be a wife or you can be a maid. And both of those things require you to be properly feminine. If you are not properly feminine, you cannot get one of those jobs. You will end up poor, at which point you will be arrested because our prison system, again, focuses on poor people and other people too, but definitely on poor people. So they determined that that was what the system, the women's legal system that they started to build in the 1870s, that's what it needed to do. It needed to find and focus on women who are improperly feminine and arrest them at younger and younger ages for less serious, quote unquote, crimes in order to get them into the system that was going to in some way fix them by making them feminine. Because of this, the system has always focused in on women who are gender non-conforming, non-binary folks, trans men, but also on black women who are always seen as more masculine, less feminine, less able to live up to the standards of white Victorian femininity, right? So we get a system from the very beginning that focuses on queer people and black people and especially on queer black people. And that never changes, right? We mentioned that statistic earlier, about 40% of folks in women's detention centers identify as LGBTQ. It's actually probably higher than that because these people had to verbally identify in an in-prison interview with a stranger as queer to get marked down. So that 40% is probably a low number. But what we know about that number is it also holds true in youth detention centers, mm. in detention centers for girls, 40% of the youth identify as LGBTQ. And what happens is maybe they're a little masculine of center. Then they're made fun of in school. Then they start skipping school. Then there's a dress code that won't let them wear pants. And now they're truant. And now they're arrested. And now they're in the school to prison pipeline. Gender nonconformity over and over and over again makes you targeted by our criminal legal system. And it is not an accident. Oh, I so greatly uh, appreciate you, you know, really, really talking about kind of the the origins of how we got to this this moment. And I think a lot of folks think, but there are women who commit really horrific crimes. There are queer black women living in poverty with disabilities who kill people or harm people or engage in, you know, fraud or, or whatever else lands a, a person in prison, what do you do with those people? What do you do with, with the people who, sure, have a, an experience that's defined by oppression and marginalization, but also um, have made some pretty bad choices or made mistakes? You know, I think that's an interesting question because people bring it up with this assumption that the answer is, you know, not available to us or that we have no idea. And I like to turn this question a little bit on its face and say, do you think our current system is helping those people? Right. We have a uh, 
70 something percent recidivism rate for people currently incarcerated in state prisons. Well, I want to pause you right there, because I think actually as a society, we haven't gotten to the place where we want to help people. Right. What we want is to keep people away from us. You're dangerous and I shouldn't have to be afraid to live my life because these dangerous people are running around in my community. Um, I I think we're 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 not there yet. So I think the question people are asking isn't about what do we do with these people? It's the question people are asking is, how do we stay safe from these people? Right. If these folks right. are, are are violent, are are less honest, are predatory, um, isn't prison the best way to keep them away from us? I mean, what I always say to those people is, is twofold. One, you're putting these people into a place that is going to, we know, make them more in danger to violence themselves, right? You're saying because you've done, in your view, one wrong thing, now you deserve to be punished in other ways. Right now, folks who are in prison in America, one in 12 people every year is sexually assaulted in prison. Do you think that someone who stole something or even committed arson or assault deserves to be raped for their crimes? I don't think so. I think that when we put these people in places that make them more vulnerable, not only are we passing on this supposed danger that we feel as people who are not currently incarcerated and making other people suffer for our fears, which may or may not be true, but also we are then compounding upon them more pain, more suffering, less preparation for a life that does not involve that kind of pain and suffering and harm and oppression by the government and abandonment by your community. That's not going to help anyone. It's not going to help them. It's not going to help those people who are afraid of them because we live in an interconnected society. Unless those people who want to build a wall and get you know everyone out bad on the other side are willing to cut these people off forever, unless we're talking like penal colonies on Mars, there is never going to be a moment where this does not rebound upon the people who think that it will protect them. This isn't safety. At best, at best, it maybe gets you a little more time living in total fear that as one day these walls are going to break down, right? Mm. It does not fix anything. It does not improve anything. It does not help you in the long run. And it also assumes that we know who is going to harm us. And that frequently is wrong. I mean, I, I don't know how things are where you are right now, but certainly this last year in New York City has seen a wave of hyperbolic reporting about the murder rate, right? We're trying to drive home this this fear that we're going to get murdered at any moment. It, one, it's way lower than it was in the 80s when I was a kid. So that on the side. But two, the people who are are are, are killing each other that you might be exposed to oftentimes especially if you're a woman it's your husband it's your boyfriend it's not a random stranger i'm coming to you from madison wisconsin in dane county there's an average of about seven homicides a year the majority of those homicides are domestic violence um and i i so appreciate you speaking to that i also appreciate you talking about statistics around sexual assault in prison um the number of of people who end up pregnant in prison um, is alarming and and really surprising. When I went to a a juvenile correction facility a couple years ago, so I went and toured um, Lincoln Hills in Wisconsin, and it is a decently sized juvenile detention center. There are, you know, uh, the the girl side of it is called Copper Lake, and every single young woman who was in it... um, talked about being molested as a child. Um, so there, the 100% of, of the girls that I, I talked with ha- were victims of, of sexual assault. Most of that had happened in early childhood. Um, and so, you know, it seems like, and this and this is part of my, my original question around homeless youth, it seems like we're so much more excited to punish the, the young people who are responding to the trauma they've experienced than to confront the adults who are traumatizing these young people. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like for, for you know, women in detention centers who... Um, continue to be blamed, continue to be told that they're responsible, um, but don't have anybody who's protecting them from the the things that have happened that are really horrific in their lives. Yeah, I mean, over and over again, women, particularly those who are in the criminal legal system, but, but all women in general are seen by the system as, it's like men are people and women are a temptation or 
a chance to pass along defective genes to the next generation. We punish men for what they've done. We punish women for what they might do to white men. And that happens at every level. So there are so many women in this history, when I look at this prison, who were incarcerated for things like having gonorrhea, right? For decades, we had this thing in America called the American Plan. It started with World War I. It lasted up into the 1970s. The federal government paid for it. Every attorney general in the country was working on it. And the way the American Plan worked was this. If anyone a police officer, a judge, uh, someone in the health services thought that you were a woman who might have syphilis or gonorrhea, you could be incarcerated, forcibly tested for syphilis or gonorrhea, and incarcerated until you were cured. This at a time when we did not have good tests or good cures for these diseases. So you're being pumped full of arsenic and mercury. Jesus. These people did nothing right? Nothing at all to end up inside this system. And yet, because they were seen as a danger to white men who might get syphilis or gonorrhea from them and be needed for things like the war during World War I or World War II, or for work, for the economy, right? These women ended up in prison. That over and over again is how we treat women in the legal system and those that the legal system perceives as women. We don't attend to their needs, their cares, what is harming them, what is dangerous for them. We perceive them as a threat to other people, as something to be managed. Mm. I, I think, you know, when I was thinking about this, you've talked a lot about the criminalization of poverty um, and, and the idea that our, our criminal justice system targets poor people. Um, the wage gap means that women are far more likely to live in poverty than men. In fact, the majority of people who live in poverty worldwide are women and children. Um, the majority of violent crime is committed by men. The majority of people we incarcerate are men, um, are people who identify with masculinity. So talk to me a little bit about why there are so many more men incarcerated than women and you know, women are more likely to live in poverty. Women are criminalized for their gender and are more likely to go to prison for really punitive reasons. Um, women, you know, right now in prisons, women are, are going to jail for the abuse of men, right? Men abuse their children and, and women are, are blamed for it, those sorts of things. How come there are so many fewer women than men in prison if women are more likely to live in poverty than men? You know, it goes back to a lot of what I was saying before about this public life and public crimes. The things that we are arrested and incarcerated for really determine on police access to us and to our lives. Many women who are in poverty are inside the home, right? They are not in spaces where the police are very easily able to access them, except in the cases of if you are already being um, you know, visited by Child Protective Services or one of these other kind of institutions that are entangled with the police state, but are at least putatively there to kind of help, even if they don't always do that kind of help. Uh, so women in many cases in those senses do not get accessed by the police, but when they do, they're in a lot more danger, right? Because the police are much more likely to look at them and arrest them for all of these things, which we don't consider crimes when men do them. Prostitution is a great example. Almost everyone arrested for it is a woman, but there's a lot of men involved there, right? <laughs> um, abuse is another great example. Neglect, right? Uh, women get arrested for neglecting their children after they themselves have been abandoned by the partners or by the extended family, right? So we concentrate that crime on the woman involved because she is the mother. Because again, it's not about her. It's about the people around her again and again and again. We punish women for how other people around them may or may not be impacted by their own behavior. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we're chatting with author, author Hugh Ryan about his latest book, The Women's House of Detention. I want to talk to you about why this prison is so important. Um, it was easy to get kind of completely, you know, immersed in the stories of this prison and the significance of this prison and the 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 really, you know, big names who found themselves in this prison. Um, but, you know, you could say it's like any other 
prison. What makes uh, the 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 women's house of detention important, significant, historically relevant, um, and and why did it close in 1971? Mm. What made the House of Detention unique in terms of queer history, I would say, all prisons are very queer places, but the Women's House of Detention was located in Greenwich Village, which has for decades, at the very least, been kind of a sine qua non for queerness in America, right? It, it defines the world. Christopher Street led right into the House of Detention. Christopher Street is like a, a word for queerness. Uh, when I lived in Berlin, they had Christopher Street Day instead of Pride, right? In every way, this place where the House of Detention was located is central to queer history of the 20th century. And that's not a coincidence. That's the thing that really drives me crazy about this history. We have kind of cut the House of D out of it. We sort of removed it from the history of Greenwich Village and the queer movement. But if you look at that particular time period, the 1930s up to the 1970s, kind of the most homophobic period in American history, we get all of these raids, bars being shut down, people being arrested on the street. The government could literally arrest you in your bedroom for the kind of sex you were having. We drove what had been a vibrant pre-World War II queer community underground. As they were arresting all of these people, as they were bursting into the bars and on the streets and into your bedroom, where did they bring them? Well, if they were queer women, they brought them down to Greenwich Village because that's where the House of D was. That's where the women's court was. For decades, as they shut down every other public queer venue they could find, they aggregated queer women and trans people, many of them black, in Greenwich Village, which is the heart of queer history in the 20th century. How can this not be central to our story, right? When you look at the history of, say, lesbian bars in America, you find tons of them in New York City's history. And you know where most of them are and the oldest ones all are? Around the Women's House of Detention. It is the center of the universe around which all of these queer people moved at a time period when they could be forced out of every other space, but not this one. And they are determinative. You can, in the 1930s, see references to the ways in which the House of D is extending the borders of Greenwich Village, extending the borders of queer territory. Over and over and over again, sociologists know that queer neighborhoods aren't really defined by who owns the land. They're defined by the queer people who do not have private space in which to enact their queer lives. So largely working class people, and youth who perform queerness on the streets. These are the people who came to the village because of the House of D. Either they became there because they were arrested and brought to the House of D, or they came to visit friends who were at the House of D, or once the House of D helped establish this neighborhood reputation, because it's right in the center of the village, women could yell up and down to each other about their loves in public displays that you couldn't find anywhere else in the city. So all these people came to the village to experience this thing created by the prison. And people might be thinking, okay, I'm exaggerating, you know? But if you look at it, it's it's everywhere over and over and over again. During the Stonewall riots, the women on the inside held a riot all their own, chanting gay rights, gay rights, gay rights, while tossing their belongings out the buildings, setting them on fire and throwing them at people outside. There's a whole show, a Broadway show called Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, which is coming back to Broadway next year. It has the first lesbian love song ever sung on Broadway in it. And it is a song between two women one on the street and one incarcerated in the women's house of detention, singing up to each other. The public life of Greenwich Village was in part, and not entirely, but in part determined by the women's house of detention. It was part of a constellation of spaces that provided room for working class queer people in this neighborhood. It was the women's house of detention, the piers where a lot of men gathered to have sex, the West Side Highway where a lot of queer homeless people like Sylvia Rivera lived at different parts of their lives, the trucks in the meatpacking district, and one by one, all of those spaces were shut down over the course of the 20th century, turning Greenwich Village into the kind of gentrified playground that it is today. But these people, who we largely don't even know their names, they made Greenwich Village what it is, and that in turn defined queerness for America. Oh. That was just so beautifully said. I was like, I knew I was going to I was going to cry talking to you. I, I do want to ask, you know, why was the prison shut down in 1971? What happened? Where did where did this where did this prison kind of break down and why? Um, and 
these folks continue to be criminalized, right? Whether they're in that neighborhood or not, queer folks of color, LGBTQ folks of color, folks living in poverty with disabilities continue to be incarcerated. So if they're not going to the House of D, where do they go now? Okay, so we'll start with the shutdown. There are kind of two important threads here. One is the gentrification of Greenwich Village. As the neighborhood was becoming nicer, more central to the city, as more people wanted it, the prison felt less and less in step with the neighborhood. 1920s, you can find all of these people in the neighborhood are like, it's great to have the prison here. Really easy to see our relatives if they're arrested. And it's actually a source of jobs. By the 1960s, that is a minority opinion. Uh, Most people want the prison gone. They feel it's not right. Even though prisons have existed in Greenwich Village since the 1790s, we start to get this narrative as it gentrifies that it's not the right place, that they were inflicted upon the village rather than constitutive to the village. So that thread is really angling to get the prison out no matter what. Then, in 1965, an 18-year-old white college student is arrested while protesting the Vietnam War outside the UN. While she's arrested, she spends three days in the Women's House of Detention, uh, where she was so brutally scarred by the forcible intake exams they did on people, which are like uh, cavity searches and pap smears, that she is scarred for life. She bleeds internally. Uh, When she's finally released, she ends up meeting and talking to this other peace activist, uh, a woman who turns out to be the author, Grace Paley, who says, this is so terrible, I have to get you to a doctor, and then we have to tell your story to the world. And this young woman agrees. And that young woman was Andrea Dworkin, who would go on to be the famous feminist of the 1970s. So at this point in her life, she was just a college student who cared about social justice. And her story made the news. There had been protests for decades about these inhuman exams. Everyone knew they were wrong. Everyone knew they were useless. In fact, a report done in 1958 said that they had never, not once, in the entire existence of the prison found contraband through them. Yet they continued to do them till the day the prison closed. So people protested these forever. But when Andrea Dworkin, who was young, white, college educated, and had Grace Paley, this really famous name behind her, when she stepped forward with these complaints, She was the perfect victim, the one that they had to pay attention to. She so embarrassed the city that within a few weeks of her arrest, there were five different government investigations opened into the House of D, and it became a major part of the mayoral campaign that year. Of course, as soon as the mayoral campaign was over, everybody stopped caring, uh, and it would take another six years to actually move the House of D somewhere else. But once her story made the news, it was the final nail in the hammer of the coffin. You know, it just could not be stopped. It was going to be moved from that point on. And they moved them to Rikers, which you asked, where are these people today? They are still at Rikers. Uh, Different setup. There have been a couple of different prisons there. Uh, Rosie's is the newest one, the one that's there right now that we're working on closing. Um, But nobody wanted them to go to Rikers. It was a situation, a solution that solved none of the problems and created only more issues. It was harder to get to. Uh, Almost immediately after the move, the guards at the prison started to strike because they found it so much worse than the previous location. The folks who were incarcerated found it so much worse. The new prison was opened with this great fanfare about how it was going to have a nursery for young children so that pregnant women could see their kids. And it was going to have so much more space. It wouldn't be overcrowded the way the House of D always was, except By the day it opened, it was already overcrowded. So overcrowded that they actually had to tear that nursery right out and put in a dormitory for more incarcerated people. By the time it closed, it was holding something like 600 more people than it was meant to at a time, 500 of whom were male adolescents because they didn't have another jail to put them in, right? This new prison was no better than the one we had before. But if you were rich and white and you owned property in Greenwich Village, it was better in the sense that you didn't have to see those people or think about them or consider them when you were thinking about your property values. They were about maybe the only people that this situation helped. Uh, That prison was eventually closed. Then Rosie's opened up. We are trying now. There's been this agreement to close Rosie's uh, and do these borough-based jails. You know, I think anything that adds to the footprint of the carceral system is going to be a mistake in the long run because the truth is we only care and make changes for small periods of time. And then a lot of the energy runs away and we stop paying attention and everything relapses back to cruelty. So the more prisons we build, the more spaces we have uh, to cage people and be cruel to them later. So I'm not sure what exactly we should do, but I do think the folks who've been working to close Rosie's have been doing an incredible job. Uh, The 
closed Rikers campaign, the Freedom Agenda, the Jails Action Coalition, Survived and Punished. I mean, there are amazing, incredible groups working with leadership from formerly incarcerated people and those who are systems impacted to change these issues. And my hope truly is that this book can be a historical backup to them. I, I don't know a lot about what should be done today. I'm not a community organizer. I don't have the answers. But I know when I look backwards, I can see how we got here. I can see the system that we built and I can understand why it is still consistently targeting queer women, trans people, black people, people who are poor, people with mental health concerns. I can see that this isn't an accident. This isn't something we can fix. It's constitutive to what the system is. Any tinkering at the edges of our criminal legal system is incapable of fixing the problem. Because the truth is, we have all of these broken systems, education, public housing, healthcare, welfare. All of these systems have people who pour through them, who do not get the support they need. And because we have nowhere else to put them, we put them in prison. So when you tinker around the edges and you say, oh, we're gonna you know, make some small changes to bail, say, uh, important changes, but small, they simply cannot hold because the rest of our society demands we have a place to put these people we do not care for anywhere else. Unless we truly have root change to what the system is, it will not be fixed by minor reforms. Reforms are not capable of fixing the system. They're important. Reforms are important. Providing better health care to people who are currently incarcerated is important. Getting rid of cash bail is important. All of these small reforms that help incarcerated people and their families matter. But in terms of changing the system, we need to start from the ground up. Because so long as we start from prisons, we will never get anywhere. It has to be a bigger set of changes. Abolition is a much bigger lens than just closing prisons, so that matters. I think abolitionism is so much less popular than law and order, than the idea of, of public safety relying on jails and prisons. Um, there, there is this abolitionist movement, right? The, the defund the police movement. I think these movements um, get in some ways blown out of proportion, are, are seen as bigger or more popular than they are. Um, the truth is there is a, a desire to ramp up incarceration. I live in a state right now where it is a crime to have an abortion. That obviously means women and particularly young women, young women living in poverty are more likely to be incarcerated for having a miscarriage, be incarcerated for, you know, making decisions about their own bodies, be incarcerated for struggling to maintain a pregnancy um, and be incarcerated for abortion, for choosing not to have a child. That criminalization means we could see more women incarcerated. We could see a lot more young women incarcerated. Mm -hmm. The other thing I want to say is that we saw during the Trump administration a new appetite in the United States for the incarceration of small children, um, really looking at like how young can a person be subjected to incarceration, to familial separation. And we were, were incarcerating and separating infants from their families. Um, how How do you kind of you know, use your book as a, a warning as we, you know, become more invested in incarceration. In the state of Wisconsin, there's nothing we spend more money on than incarcerating people, not education, not not any other aspect of our government. We dedicate more resources to putting people in jails and prison than anything else. It's, it's vile. And, you know, I think the way that my book, I hope, sort of interrupts some of this is that it shows that the more we invest in the system, the more the system requires us to keep investing in it, right? It's not producing safety. It is not rehabilitating anyone. It is not capable of doing those things. In fact, it makes every system worse. If you have someone who, let's say, let's use your example, a young woman who has now been arrested for having an abortion. Well, maybe she is now pulled out of school because of it. Maybe she has to now do all of these other things so she won't be able to support herself in the future. Maybe her Pell Grants are taken from her. Maybe she wanted to be a beautician, but in the state where she's in, if you have a felony, you can no longer get a beautician's license. Maybe all of these other ways we have now cut her off from any support. Now, maybe because other people know she's been incarcerated, she's going to be shunned by those people. Maybe the prison they're going to put her in is really far from her family, who they themselves do not have a lot of time and resources. In every way, we are making that person less vulnerable. 
less able to have a fully functioning, happy, independent life. We are taking support away from them in a moment where they need more support. And then the only supports we do give them are in jail. So the second they end up out of prison, we rip those supports away and we say, make it on your own. Here in New York, if you've been arrested as a felony and you are set free, they give you 40 bucks. 40 bucks. If you don't have someone to help you, how far is that going to get you? Right? Mm. This system is not capable of fixing things. At best, it is a stopgap, a, a slowing down, an attempt to hold back something that it is actually making worse. So every time we invest more in it, we guarantee a future that is worse five years down the line. Abolition looks at upstream answers. They might take longer in some ways, right? They might require us to dedicate ourselves with longer political horizons to making change. But those are the only answers that are going to actually change the future. Oh, I so appreciate you saying that. And I want to return to something you said earlier. And I'm like, I could talk to you forever. So I'm so grateful that they're reminding me that we have five minutes left. But uh, one of the things you said, you know, in talking about why the prison ultimately closed was the the damage pain that people suffered during being cavity searched, strip searched and having gynecological exams while incarcerated. Um, People are still strip searched. Um, Children are strip searched in our community. Um, People still have cavity uh, search. Churches, people still have gynecological exams in prison. Um, I, I, I want to ask, how does the Women's House of Detention reconcile kind of that history in terms of the progression of that, in terms of, you know, what prenatal care looks like while incarcerated right now, what it looks like to be strip searched um, as a young person now? You know, a lot of this is the the same thing. It's the same things happening over and over again, uh, no matter how we change it. New York City is still being arrested, even though we're not supposed to be doing these cavity searches and pap smears anymore. New York City is still being uh, found guilty of having done it and and getting these exorbitant fees paid to people who have been persecuted by our system. So I do think there has been some change. There's much more awareness, I think, in general, that these are uh, sort of odious mechanisms that don't work. Now, how that translates into legal change, though, is is always questionable. I mean, we had some, you know, movement on bail reform here in New York. And then as soon as a bunch of journalists, uh, like, hyperventilated about these supposed crime statistics going up, well, bail reform was targeted, even in places where it hadn't actually taken effect yet, even at times where it definitely was not responsible for anything, right? So that's that's kind of my fear. We, we do move forward. I don't want to say that we don't, because that uh, cuts us off at the knees and says progress is impossible. We have to believe progress is possible. But we also have to see how so much of this is cyclical and it comes back again. If we don't make radical changes, if we don't take apart the thing, if we only futz around the edge, we'll be dealing with the same question again in a year, in 10 years, in 50 years. Yeah, and we'll be seeing the same harm and the same damage. I cannot thank you enough for joining us. My last question for you today is, I want you to know that I'll, I'll remember this book for the rest of my life. And you dedicated this book to the memory of those forgotten. What is it you hope that folks who read the house of the women's house of detention, what do you hope they take away from it? What do you want us to remember? The thing I want people to remember is the two things. One, that prisons matter, that the people in them are people. They are part of our communities. They are full humans who affect the world and deserve care. And two, if this story can exist in Greenwich Village, largely told through records that were publicly available at the New York Public Library, if there are people in living memory who connect us to this history, and most of us do not know it and have not known it, What does that tell us about the other marginalized histories that are out there? I think we as marginalized people are often told that our history does not exist, that it has been erased, destroyed, or wasn't even there to begin with. And here it is sitting on the surface, waiting for us. We just have to look for it and listen to the people who lived it and share it with each other. Oh, Hugh Ryan, it was such an honor to get to talk to you about your book. Thanks, folks, for tuning in to WORT 89.9 FM. My name's Ali Maldro. This is A Public Affair. Next week, we're talking to Adrian Marie Brown and Sonia about their book. Please tune in, and thanks for listening.